Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Brazil's new president, Jair Bolsonaro, made one of his first orders of business to change Brazil's approach to protecting indigenous people. He took the indigenous land demarcation away from the Indian Affairs Department and gave it to the Agriculture Ministry. With me is Sarah Shankar from Survival International. They're champions of tribal peoples around the world. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for covering this. I wanted to ask about specifically what this uh, bureaucratic change, taking land demarcation and giving it to the agriculture ministry, what's that going to do to indigenous protections in Brazil? That change is extremely dangerous, extremely problematic for indigenous peoples and their land all around Brazil. Because by giving the Ministry of Agriculture the power to map out indigenous territories, really what that means is it will be extremely unlikely for any more indigenous territories to be mapped out. Because in the past, it was the responsibility of the Indigenous Affairs Department of the government to do that. And even there, where there was goodwill, the process took a very long time. Of course, there were all sorts of obstacles. There were ranchers and other people, including politicians with interests that would block the mapping out of indigenous territories. But now under the Ministry of Agriculture, uh, which is now led by a minister called Teresa Cristina, who is anti-indigenous and who is one of the leaders of the agribusiness lobby in Congress, it will be even more unlikely for indigenous territories to be mapped out. Minister Teresa Cristina and her colleagues, on the contrary, want to open up indigenous territories for exploitation and for profit, for example, uh, from large-scale plantations and from mining and from logging and from all sorts of other activities. And of course, this would be catastrophic for indigenous people, especially for uncontacted tribes who are the most vulnerable peoples on the planet. Sarah, is there a particular indigenous group that is going to face the changes here that Jair Bolsonaro is putting out uh, right off the bat? These changes will affect all indigenous people of Brazil because they all depend on their lands and need their lands to be protected. But one indigenous people that stands a lot to lose is the Guarani, the Guarani people on the Brazil-Paraguay border. Um, there are around 50,000 Guarani in Brazil, so they're one of the biggest tribes in Brazil, actually. But almost all of their land has been stolen from them to make way for agribusiness. And if you visit their area, it's shocking, really. You see for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers sugarcane and soy and corn and cattle ranches and no forest at all. Many of them live in Mato Grosso do Sul state. Mato Grosso do Sul means thick forest of the south. But you see hardly any forest still standing because almost all of it has been destroyed to make way for these plantations. And in the meantime, the Guarani are living on the sides of main roads and in makeshift camps and in overcrowded reserves uh, with very high rates of malnutrition and disease and one of the highest rates of suicide in the world as a result of this theft of their land. It's an appalling situation. And because their land hasn't been mapped out for them yet and they're waiting for that to happen, they actually stand a lot to lose by this move. Uh, Bolsonaro giving the Ministry of Agriculture the responsibility for mapping out indigenous territories. So the Guarani are fighting back and they're saying that they won't accept this. They need their ancestral land, which they call their tecoha. They need that in order to survive.
I wonder if you could give us a little idea about what this means for Brazil's rainforest, because the protection of the indigenous lands, it sounds like that's the only thing that's been slowing the destruction of the rainforest in Brazil. Well, yes, actually, it's incredible because, of course, indigenous peoples depend completely on their land for their survival, for their food, for their shelter, for their medicine, absolutely everything. And they have a very strong spiritual connection to their land as well. And they have looked after their land for generations. They're the best guardians of their environments. So if you look at indigenous territories on satellite imagery, you see that they are very often islands of green. Uh, in the middle of seas of deforestation. And that's because the indigenous people have looked after that land so well. So it's no surprise now that the politicians and ranchers involved with agribusiness have their eye on these territories. I mean, in many cases, these territories are the only places where, for example, valuable hardwoods still stand. And we see that particularly in the eastern Amazon, where there's a very high rate of deforestation. There are the uncontacted Awa Indians, for example, who are extremely vulnerable and who face extinction if their land isn't protected. And all around them, the valuable hardwoods have already have already been cut down uh, by illegal loggers. So it's only on their land that these woods still remain. And so that's just one example of the many tribes and many territories that are under extreme pressure. They were already, and now with uh, Brazil's new president, Bolsonaro, things look to be much worse. I wonder if you could tell us what's happening with the Kawahiva people, because uh, it sounds like Brazil's government just last month took an operation to protect them and to protect their land. Uh, it sounds like this is the kind of the opposite of the new incoming administration. Yes. So the Kawahiva are an uncontacted tribe living in the western Brazilian Amazon. And they are the survivors of a tribe that was massacred by invaders decades ago. And the Kawahiva are living on the run. Their land still hasn't been fully mapped out. The Brazilian constitution of 1988 and international law say that indigenous territories need to be uh, mapped out and protected. And in Brazil, that happens for the exclusive use of indigenous people rather than for their ownership. But at least for their exclusive use. However, in the case of the Kawahiva, that process has been stalled by all sorts of uh, profit-making interests, and uh, therefore the land mapping process has not been completed. But Survival launched a global campaign, actually, for that land to be protected, because we realised that the Kawahiva will be extinct very soon if that land isn't protected. So amazingly, at the end of last year, the Brazilian government evicted the ranchers who were operating illegally on the Kawahiva territory. That was a very important success. However, now it remains to be seen if the next stages of the land mapping and protection process will happen. And as we're saying, things are more difficult under the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro. But then again, the Brazilian constitution is still the same and it is his responsibility, his government's responsibility to map out and protect this land. And indigenous people and Survival International will not stop campaigning for that to happen. I'm talking with Sarah Shankar from Survival International. Coming up in a few moments, I'll be speaking with a Kenyan physician who's saving lives by creating a system to effectively treat childhood cancer in Kenya. I wanted to ask about uh, the new president's attitude towards 
NGOs. And it sounds like people like Survival International are he is not friendly towards. Uh, he thinks that the they are manipulating and exploiting uh, the indigenous people of Brazil, and they are going to integrate all the citizens into their care, and that uh, the NGOs are caring for the Brazilians now and or for the Brazilian indigenous people. And they're going to change that and make it the Brazilian government who takes care of them. Uh, what what does that sound like to you? Well, it sounds very much like an authoritarian president. I mean, what we've seen in the last few days since the 1st of January when Jair Bolsonaro took office as Brazil's president is that he has already issued at least three decrees which are designed to steal and destroy indigenous people's territories. And one of those is a decree ordering that international organizations, which would include Survival International, be monitored and coordinated. This really sounds like a very authoritarian idea. It sounds like a president who doesn't want to have to be held account for anything or doesn't want to be bothered by people demanding that he fulfill the Brazilian constitution. And that's a big problem. The rhetoric about integration is another important point indeed. And this is something that was a very important idea at the time of the military dictatorship in Brazil as well. This idea that indigenous people need to be integrated into national society. And we don't accept that idea, uh, especially for uncontacted tribes. Uncontacted tribes who have no regular contact with mainstream society show time and again that they don't want that contact. They, for example, point their bows and arrows up over planes that are flying over, or they'll leave crossed on forest paths and they show that they want to live uncontacted and that's their right and that often is a result of atrocities that their peoples have suffered in the past that's why they've decided to live uncontacted they see that that's their best chance of survival so this idea of integrating them is catastrophic of course to integrate them you'd first have to contact them and forced contact with uncontacted tribes is fatal Often, large proportions of the tribe will die of disease that is introduced by outsiders. Even a cold or a flu could kill uncontacted Indians because they don't have resistance to that disease. Or by violence brought in by invaders following forced contact. So that's an extremely dangerous idea to contact and integrate uncontacted tribes. And when it comes to indigenous people more generally, not uncontacted tribes, again, they have the right to choose how they live and they don't need to be forced to be integrated. If they want to integrate, they can. It's a matter of choice and that's their right. Their moral right and their right under national and international law as well. There are some uncontacted groups that are very small, like some of the ones we've been talking about. And the, some of that are larger, the Yanomami are around 30,000 people, and they have uncontacted people and contacted people and people who are out there in the world. How do you describe what their resistance would look like? What do they do if they're going to face uh, big changes from Jair Bolsonaro? Yes. So, as you say, the Yanomami tribe, there's about 30,000 or more than 30,000, actually, Yanomami altogether, some in Brazil, some in Venezuela. Most Yanomami do have some degree of contact with mainstream society, but others are uncontacted. 
When it comes to the contacted Yanomami or other contacted indigenous people, well, what we've been seeing in recent months since Jair Bolsonaro won the Brazilian election, what we have been seeing is that they have united They're being extremely resistant. Of course, they're very sad and worried and angry about what's going on and about Bolsonaro's moves to rip up their lands and therefore their lives. Um, But they're also extremely resistant. What they've been telling us, and we've been receiving messages left, right and centre from all uh, parts of Brazil, and what they've been telling us is that, sadly, they have seen this sort of behaviour since the Europeans colonised Brazil 500 years ago. Uh, So even though things now have been taken to another level and much action is required, it's not a new phenomenon that people are trying to steal their lands from them. And what they're saying is that they will carry on fighting. They won't give up. They'll do whatever it takes to protect their lands. And I think that's quite interesting. And we're likely to see more and more protest actions and actions on the ground, as they say, in indigenous territories by indigenous people resisting and not allowing others to invade their territories. You know, one of the things I was reading about Jair Bolsonaro is that he thinks that indigenous people want to get rich too. They want to have stuff like everybody else, and they're going to go in there and they're going to cut deals with people, and they're going to bring them into civilization and that kind of thing. Is there an appeal in getting rich for the indigenous people of Brazil? Well, first I'd say that indigenous people are just as much a part of civilization or modernity or whatever you want to call it as anyone else. They live in a different way, but that doesn't mean that it's better or worse or that they aren't part of the current day and age. And in fact, they're evolving just like any society is evolving all the time. In terms of making money from their territories or making money in other ways, well, that is up to indigenous people themselves. We're not saying that indigenous people don't have the right to make money. And of course, if indigenous people want to go to the city to work and make money, that's their choice. And many of them do do that. If they want to use their land to make money, well, there are rules about that. And they've got to also consult with the rest of their community. But the point is that what Bolsonaro is talking about is not that. He's talking about forcing the opening up of indigenous territories. And in so many cases already, we've seen deals be done with indigenous people where their free prior and informed consent hasn't been sought. That's something that has to happen under international law for any project that's going to affect indigenous territories. And all too often it doesn't happen. We see the example of the Belomanchi mega dam, for example, uh, which has destroyed the land of thousands of indigenous people. And they weren't consulted properly about that, of course. The Brazilian government um, bulldozed its way in and gave contracts to companies. And that was before Bolsonaro. What we're likely to see is more such behaviour. And so that's why Survival International and indigenous people are really ready to combat that sort of threat. What should people do who want to help Brazil's indigenous and help protect the rainforest? At the moment, there's a really important need to spread indigenous people's own messages, actually, about what's going on. Because, of course, 
Jair Bolsonaro and his ideas are very much in the news, but it's important to listen to indigenous people. And so uh, on Survival International's website and Twitter accounts, for example, and on Facebook, people can see indigenous people's messages and help share them. I think that's really important. And we'd also, of course, encourage people to join the movement, to join Survival, the global movement for tribal peoples, because we'll imminently have other international campaign actions that people can get involved in. Sarah Shankar is with Survival International. You can find out more about them at survivalinternational.org. And we've been talking about Brazil's new president, Jair Bolsonaro. He made one of his first orders of business to change Brazil's approach to protecting indigenous people. Thanks a lot for joining us, Sarah. Thank you very much. In Kenya, most children don't survive cancers that are treatable here. After the break, we'll hear from a physician who saves lives by expanding child cancer detection and treatment in Kenya. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Malaria, tuberculosis, and HIV get lots of attention from international aid organizations. But in many places, there's a huge opportunity to keep children from dying from cancer. We're going to talk about one effort to do so. And with me is a board member of Children's Place International, Dr. James McCauley. They have an effort to help stop cancer in Africa. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Jerome, for having me today, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I do think you're right that most people, when they think of health issues in Africa, they think of infectious diseases. Certainly I do as an infectious disease specialist who worked in Africa. But once you live there and you work there, you realize there are many opportunities to improve health, and in particular in the area of cancer. Most of the sub-Saharan Africa is emerging and developing economically, and a lot of the health issues that are mostly associated with the West or with Europe are emerging as significant issues. So I found it quite a tragedy to be there in Africa and see children dying of cancers that were quite treatable. So Children's Place International, beginning about two years ago, and with support from Takeda Pharmaceutical, has been working in Kenya to address pediatric cancers, and in particular, Burkitt's lymphoma. And uh, with us is Dr. Chite Asirwa, and he is Field Director on Oncology and Hematology at Ampeth Kenya, and it's uh, an organization that's uh, working on this project. Good to meet you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. And you're also the recipient of Children Place International's Hero Award for your pioneering work to treat children and adults with cancers in Kenya. You have a program that has gone from 400 patients to 10,000 patients in a short number of years, six years. Yes, we do. So um, I'm very, very glad uh, to be here, and I'm very happy for not only this award, but also for the collaborative partnership uh, that we've held with Takeda as well as with Children Place International. I'm the current uh, field director for AMPATH. AMPATH actually stands for Academic Model, Providing Access to Healthcare. This is a collaborative partnership as well. Uh, between Indiana University uh, with Moy University and Moy Teaching and Referral Hospital in Eldoret, Kenya. Uh, and over the last uh, several years, we've been partnering initially with HIV care, but right now 
uh, we are doing with uh, chronic diseases, including uh, cancer. So in 2011, we were seeing about 400 cancer patients a year within the program. Uh, but as of last year, we've seen more than 10,000 uh, patients. Currently, we see about 2,000 new cancer patients every year. And tell me something about children specifically and the kind of projects you're working on. Burkitt's lymphoma is a specific kind of cancer that children get. I understand it's pretty aggressive, but it's really curable. Yes, that is very true. And uh, first of all, to note is that uh, pediatric cancers generally have a better uh, outcome if really well managed than adult cancers uh, in general. However, Burkitt's lymphoma is one of the lymphomas. uh, We call them blood cancers that is associated with very high cure rates uh, here in the U.S. and in the developing world, greater than 90% actually. And then in our setting, not only is there very little in terms of, to speak of in terms of cure rates, uh, but unfortunately this is one of those cancers that is highly, highly, highly curable. So when we started partnering, we looked at within pediatric cancers, what is the cancer that we can do so much about uh, in even the shortest amount of time so that we can achieve one of the following. So one is improvement in diagnostics. How can we improve diagnosis for this cancer? How can we improve in education and training to ensure that healthcare professionals as well as the community at large really know uh, how to have a high index of sus- suspicion uh, for Bucket's lymphoma? But also what about the treatment? How can we improve the access to treatment uh, for those that we are able to diagnose that have this condition? Uh, but most importantly, also even during treatment or after treatment, how do we improve follow-up of this patient's survivorship care? So we've been able to do that, and over the last two years, we've uh, had more than 204 uh, Bucket's lymphoma patients that we've seen through our program, and we've actually managed to improve uh, the survival at two years uh, since we started this program. Uh, well, that sounds like a great thing. Is there any particular reason why there is so much Burkitt's lymphoma there? Yeah, so there are several things. So actually, if you look at uh, globally in terms of Burkitt's lymphoma, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and especially East Africa really has some of the highest numbers of Burkitt's lymphoma. It's because of association of this kind of cancer with EBV virus and also the commonality in terms of malaria endemic areas. So in areas that are very endemic for malaria, uh, there is hyperstimulation, like a lot of stimulation of the immune system uh, and making it weak, whereby the EBV virus can actually flourish. And so we end up having a lot of Burkitt's lymphoma that is EBV virus associated in an area which has malaria. All right, very tricky. Dr. McCauley? Well, I was going to interject as an infectious disease doctor. I'm always... Um, interested in the ties between other areas of medicine that aren't traditionally thought of as infections. But for your listeners, it's important or it might be helpful to know that EBV is the virus that we associate with mono, which we often think of as an annoying but not very serious infection of adolescence, sometimes referred to as kissing disease because you tend to get it in that adolescent period, and it's probably transmitted just like colds from um, person to person. So I think it's an interesting association and those of us who have practiced medicine for a while and occasionally see it in this country do think of it as a very aggressive cancer, but a very curable one. It's quite an interesting phenomenon. It responds quite nicely to fairly straightforward chemotherapy if it's available. So is that treatment expensive at all, or is it uh, not too expensive? Actually, the treatment itself is not that very expensive. So uh, at the cost of, say, uh, between $600 to $1,000, you could actually cure a child with Burkitt's lymphoma. Uh, the issue usually surrounding treatment is, first of all, proper diagnostics. Are you able to do proper diagnosis to be able to say this is truly Burkitt's lymphoma? That speaks to pathology, ensuring that your laboratories are equipped very well 
to be able to do biopsies and very good pathology. Uh, but most importantly, because the disease is very fast growing, uh, the doubling time is 24 hours. So uh, if you have a child that um, is suspected to have buckets in the next two weeks, uh, if, say, it's the buckets of the jaw, you'll find the face almost getting disfigured because it grows rapidly, wow. really overnight. And so what happens is that with a cancer that grows like that, also response, we actually see it overnight. So if we start treating these patients, uh, within a couple of weeks, three weeks, you start noticing a huge difference uh, in terms of the tumor. However, the patients must be able to keep to all the treatment regimens and get it on a timely fashion. So what we end up finding is that uh, some patients, the moment they've noticed there is an appreciable response, even though they have not completed treatment yet, they will disappear from care. So we call that loss to follow-up. And that is actually a huge thing in terms of uh, ensuring proper outcomes. So what we are able to do uh, with uh, the partnership that we have with Children's Place International as well as Takeda is that we are able to uh, fund uh, not only the treatment but also to be able to follow up these patients. We are able to call them and remind them that your clinic visit is next week and ensure that they complete all their treatments. Uh, some barriers towards these treatments are so uh, they may seem to be very small, uh, like transport to come to the hospital, for instance. We've got uh, children or families that come from places that are way far from the hospital that take even two to three days to get to the hospital. And uh, the transport from those places would actually probably be 6 to $10. However, the family may have to work for almost a week or two to be able to raise that money. So you find that when you call them and ask, why are you not coming to the clinic to get your second cycle or third cycle of treatment, uh, quite often you are told that uh, I'm trying to look for money, to raise money to be able to come. So these are some of the areas in which we've been able to mitigate in this program uh, to the extent that out of the 204 uh, pediatric population that we've seen for buckets, uh, we've only not been able to find out where two are. So we've only lost two uh, in terms of following them up. So this is actually very high considering that we were losing almost 60 to 70% of our pediatric population uh, getting lost to follow up when they've initiated on treatment. And those are some of the factors that are ensuring that the outcome is not as good. We're talking with Dr. Chite Asirwa, and he is working on Burkitt's lymphoma in Kenya. And Dr. James McCauley, he is part of Children's Place International, and they're part of a program that's helping fund the treatment of Burkitt's lymphoma in uh, Kenya. Yes. And how did you decide on honoring Dr. Chite Asirwa at Children's Place International? You, you're giving him the Heroes Award. It certainly sounds like he deserves it. He's doing some fantastic and amazing work. Um, of course, that's the main reason. He's doing fantastic and amazing work, and he's helping children. I think Children's Place International, of course, is focused on uh, pediatric health issues. Our energies and focus historically have been on HIV and HIV-related work, and I think that's one of the expertises and areas that we can offer to his program, which is kind of this, I would call it wraparound case management. We learned lessons in HIV care both in the U.S. and in Haiti and in other places in Africa where Children's Place International works in Mozambique and Zambia, that if we put the right services in place, we can take what is a difficult chronic disease in the setting of poverty and very stressful families and help them comply with treatment. And that's a big part of HIV care. So in a way that may not be obvious to many people, it's an easy fit for Children's Place to bring our expertise in pediatric case management to help keep these children in care, so lessons learned from HIV. 
um, his work came to our attention, and, and it was sort of a natural to say, wow, we can use our skills, Takeda could use their resources, and we can support his efforts. So it's been really a wonderful collaboration for two years. Dr. Asirma, how much more can you grow your program? I don't want you to grow more cancer patients, but you've had such a startling increase in the number of patients you're treating. Do you look at the situation and think we're getting, you know, half of the patients that we should? Are we getting three quarters? Are we getting a quarter? Is there some kind uh, of idea? Th- thank you for that question. So actually, I would say is that uh, we are hardly at even 20% of the number of patients that uh, we, we would be getting into this program. Uh, one of the things I've really learned a lot uh, in, in Kenya and uh, working uh, in the rural communities in Western Kenya at Ampath is that when you build a very good system and you build it, uh, we usually say if you build it, they'll come. So what has happened is that uh, initially when we started, we were seeing probably one or two or three new patients every two weeks. And now we have reached a point where we are seeing at least four new patients every week. So what that means is that uh, another year from now, we'll be talking of thousands of children uh, with buckets that have been seen through our program. So what we, we, we love is the fact that learning from also the lessons that we learn from buckets, because we don't only see buckets in the program. Uh, we have other cancers that we see, including leukemias, including uh, breast, cervical for adults, and other several other cancers. We want to use these lessons that we are learning from a program like this that is really running so well uh, that we can, can be applicable across board to others. And uh, I just want to emphasize what Jim has said, is that there are so many lessons uh, that we are learning from also the HIV programs uh, that were there before in terms of multidisciplinary care and in terms of even repurposing some of the infrastructure for HIV to be able to respond uh, to the needs that we have for cancer patients at the moment. If people want to get more information about this and learn more, they can go to uh, childrens-place.org and uh, get more information on Children's Place International and the program that's uh, helping out here in Western Kenya. That's certainly the case, and we would appreciate uh, if people want to take a look at this program as well as other programs that we are supporting. I think it's an interesting, I was sitting here listening to you and, and realizing that I've been doing HIV work since the 1980s, and The original HIV work was done by oncologists because those were some of the diseases that we were seeing in people with such suppressed immune systems. And we learned how to intervene through some of the early oncology study trials structures. And so it's kind of an interesting full circle that now some of the lessons we've learned in case management from HIV are coming back to serve the patients with cancers in Africa. So I think it's kind of an interesting and sort of nice circle of support that uh, the medical community um, has offered. Dr. James McCauley is a member of the board of Children's Place International. He's currently clinical director at White River Indian Hospital at the Fort Apache Reservation in Arizona. A whole separate conversation on that someday. Love to come back and talk about it. It's great work there. Dr. Chite Asirwa is a field director of oncology and hematology at Ampeth Kenya, and they're working in western Kenya, and he's increased the number of cancer patients in the program from 400 in 2011 to 10,000 in 2017, and he's doing a great job on uh, cancers of young children, especially with Burkitt's lymphoma. Thanks a lot for joining us, and congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Ethiopian-born chef Marcus Samuelson about immigrant food and what it means to be a traveler. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Marcus Samuelson is an American chef. Born in Ethiopia, he was adopted and raised in Sweden. He made a splash on the U.S. food scene in in the 1990s with his high-end Swedish restaurant in New York called Aquavit. But after 9-11, he listened to his Swedish mom's advice, go low profile and open something more modest, and he did that with the Red Rooster in Harlem. Last year, Samuelson started traveling the U.S. for his PBS show, No Passport Required. His visit to Chicago found him eating tacos at Mitokaya and La Barca in Back of the Yards. WBEZ's Monica Eng caught up with him while he was here to talk about immigrant food, cooking in the White House, and what it really means to be a traveler. Let's start out with Chicago food. Tell me, you've been to Chicago a few times to eat. I love Chicago. I think it's a, an incredible food town, and I always learn a ton. I've never been here when i eaten the same meal. Whether You know, I started coming here in the 90s because of one of my mentors, Charlie Trotter, and he started to show me really what it meant to be a chef. He worked on urban farming in the mid-90s. He did a vegetarian cookbook in the early 90s. So um, I was introduced to Chicago, the restaurants like the Thai restaurant Arun, for example, right? And I, he happened to bring Ferran Adria and a couple of other chefs with him, you know, and that's always what Chef Trotter did. But then I've also cooked with Paul Kahn a bunch of times, with Stephanie. But I love when you explore outside sort of the, the established circles, you know, through No Passport, I was lucky enough to meet people like Diana Mitokaya, for example. Diana Davila. Yeah, amazing. A different level, amazing. Yeah. It's like incredible. But even different places like La Barca, I think jewels like that. Chicago for me has always had these incredible stories of chefs, whether it's Rick Bayless taking us to a different part of the world or whether it's a place like La Barca. Ortiana, so you, you feel like you grow up with Chicago chefs in a very different way, you know? Yeah, I mean, all those places, Arun, uh, Diana Davila's place, uh, La Barca out in um, Back of the Yards on 47th, they're all in the neighborhoods. And speaking of the neighborhoods, you decided to open up a place in, in a neighborhood that's a little off the beaten path in New York yourself. How is the Red Rooster going? No one in Harlem would rephrase it that way, so, uh, but yeah, I get it, I get it. But I think it's all about being a traveler, right? People say they like to travel, but yet end up in London, Paris, New York, Chicago, and it's, Michigan Avenue is everywhere. But a traveler would go, you would go to Lem's Barbecue, because now you're traveling. On 75th Street, you know Lem. Please, like, please, of course. The acid wouldn't have me come to Chicago without knowing Lems or the vegetarian place down the street, right? Those are places that that's traveling. 
like going to Times Square, that's not really traveling. That's like you're still on your couch. Yeah. You know, you can say you've been to Chicago, New York, London, but not until you come to Harlem or like Back of the Arts or something like that, you really traveled because you experienced something new. You know, I interviewed Jonathan Gold for City of Gold at the Esther Gates place at 55th and Prairie, and I asked him if people could take one thing away from your film and one thing away from your writing, what would it be? And he said, get out of your comfort zone, get out of your neighborhood and try the food of a group that you just don't know about. I mean, it's been a rough year. We lost a couple of icons, right? Jonathan Gold really curated... LA for me in a way like you go in there and you felt that you were exposed and traveled and and Anthony did the same thing and you know it's just it's a big year with losses in our industry but I agree I think that even as a chef living in New York I needed to get out of my comfort zone and part of that post 9-11 for me meant to move to Harlem and learn about this iconic African-American largely African-American community but it's much more diverse than that and what it mean to... My mom always pushed me towards said, do something in the neighborhood where you live. Do something that is affordable, Marcus. Why do you always trust bankers? <laughs> we didn't grow up with bankers. We grew up with people who worked in a bank, but we didn't grow up with bankers. It was a very defined moment for me. And when she kept pushing me, I was like, you know what, I should. So I, 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 it took me six, seven years to have the guts, but also understand Harlem. And I, ple- I spoke to people like Dawood, for example, the great photographers that shot Harlem in a completely different way. And I, you know, looked at Gordon Parks and, you know, looked at the history of, of Harlem and found inspiration in that. But it took me seven years to really learn because if I'm going to be an ambassador of something, I'd really need to know what that is, you know. And how many years has it been now? It's been eight. So I've been in this for 15 years in Harlem, and it's been an amazing journey. And I needed something like that, because uh, post 9-11, I didn't know what to do. Like, I, I cooked at the Towers a week before, wow. and, I, and I knew a lot of incredible people that worked there. And I, I think a lot of people were just lost. And uh, for me, that, it was like I just needed to press pause and figure out how to reintroduce, inject myself. Mm-hmm. And very happy that I did that, because out of that came Harlem Eat Up, our food festival, that we now draw 15,000 people coming to the neighborhood to eat and just celebrate each other in terms of hospitality in the urban environment. And then I wouldn't have been able to do no passport, you know, and, and that's something that's, like, ongoing for me, keep telling stories through food. And for those who haven't seen No Passport yet, uh, you had a great episode in July on Chicago. What, what is the theme? What do, you, what do you want to get across by visiting all these cities um, and checking out their foods? Well, for me, I'm very privileged to be American. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't born here, and it's a love letter to America, to its diversity. And it's also an opportunity to show real America, uh, not the America that is argued on TV, but actually real America. And real America can be experienced through small businesses. And small businesses are going to have different voices, different tonalities, different multilocalism, and it tastes delicious but the starting point might be different. A ritual might be different, but that's why we love America. So if you're in Dearborn and going to Detroit, you have to check out the Arab-American community. You cannot 
it's not possible to be in Detroit and not do that. The I best think, baklava and best yeah. shawarma and roasted chicken and out there. culture and just like being part of offering something other. So it's like, you know, if you're in Chicago, you have to at some point just like try the Mexican experience because it's so delicious at all levels. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an opportunity to bring, show us how far we come as a country and uh, stay curious, stay hungry, and you don't know who you're going to run into. You know, it's funny. I once hosted this group of um, Russian journalists, and they said, so where would you have us eat? You know, what should we be trying here? And I said, you got to go to 18th Street and get some carnitas from Carnitas Uruapan or Don Pedro. They're like, we didn't come here for Mexican food. We came here for American food. And like, this is America. Yeah, no. And, but that's also the beauty of a surprise, right? Like, and these surprises happen all over the world, you know? Like, if you and I go to Stockholm, the Swedish pizza is engraved. Every kid has the Swedish pizza menu downloaded in their head. Uh, Tell me about it. What is that? Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> but, it's, but it's something like it's part of, you know, just being a Swede. And it's a lot of tongue-in-cheek. If you go to Sao Paulo, I can take you to the best Japanese uh, Brazilian food ever. Or right? in Berlin, the shawarma. Berlin, the, you can have Turkish food. So, uh, the donor, sorry. Yeah, so we are, I think, today, we are... Ritual's been around us longer than countries. As an African, you start with your tribe, and tribal goes across countries, mm-hmm. right? So I think so. slowly we get back to rituals and cr- tribalism in a way more than, than countries and states mm-hmm. because the ritual of Ethiopia and Eritrea and Yemen will always eat with their hands yeah. um, and some part of Southeast Asia will always eat with hands or chopsticks uh, and those rituals have been long around much longer the border between sort of Laos and Thailand and Vietnam like those are pretty young borders you know what I mean or India and Pakistan and Bangladesh for example these are yeah. young borders you know but the ritual's been around forever. So that's, as a cook, that's what I look into. I, lo- I love being inspired by rituals. I love looking at folk dance. I love looking at folk music and cooking habits. Because within that, that's what brings us together. And, and those cultures can morph and change with new additions all the time in yeah. wonderful ways. This country, we, of course, we evolved from the native and to the settlers to uh, highly inspired by Africa and then... The, the Spanish and French, and, and we build and we build and we build. So I think America's food will always evolve based on migration and, and immigration and this push and pull. And this is what we call America, and that's why it's so beautiful. You, uh, you cooked for one of the first state dinners yeah. um, under a certain administration, the Obamas. Yes. Have you been asked to cook another state dinner uh, under the current administration? <laughs> Uh, no, I've not. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I cooked for 43 and 44. I cooked also for um, Clinton, of course, and, and many presidents. So, uh, Are you, you know, expecting an invitation? I, no, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I wish... Congress would eat more immigrant-driven food. I know they love it because they, they end up going to those restaurants, but not just eating the food, 
slow down for a second and, and, and celebrate the contribution of what these families are adding to the landscape of the constituencies that they work for. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Slow down, Ray. These are small businesses, and food particularly, is keeping the lights on in many, many cities and many communities and teaching young professionals incredible life skills that they can take with them so they go to the next step. And sometimes there's completely a disconnect between subordinism, right? Like people can work for people, but not understanding that it's a culture move when you eat someone's bread or when you eat some, a new thing. So for me, it, they lack the understanding of the spiritual compass that comes with dining someone else's culture and the celebration of that. I mean, I would, I would love nothing else than to see uh, beautiful mothers and cooks storm Congress with kimchi and carnitas and moles and you name it and fried rice. It would be delicious. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good wake up call we hear. Food diplomacy. You know, I, I did a story where I had to become a hunter. I had to hunt my own meat. And I, I hung out in a lot of rural areas and I noticed that, you know, we'd wake up at four o'clock in the morning and it would be lousy coffee. And then when we go to the diner, when we take a break at like 10, it'd be lousy coffee. And, I, and I, I tend to think that if people just had better food in some of these areas, they wouldn't be so grumpy. They wouldn't be so mad at the world. But Yes. Uh, I mean, I grew up in a fishing village where lousy coffee was part of it. My drunk uncle always spiked his coffee. You know, when you're like the age of 10, you kind of, your sister, my sister was older than me, so they knew. Like, Marcus, don't touch that. And I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm 10, I'm not drinking coffee anyway. Like, what 10 year old is looking at coffee? But, but it was awesome because it was a different era, right? We didn't even have like, life vest on. <laughs> Everyone knew in the family that my drunk uncle was taking the kids out, but he was such a good, like, fisherman has been doing this all his life. So it was like, it was just part of the rituals, but um, he at least fixed his own coffee. So maybe that's what you have to do. You have to bring a flask next time. Right, right. Yeah. Try to, try to make it better somehow. Yeah. So tell me, what would happen if, let's say, the president walked into your restaurant? And what would you serve him if he was still welcome to stay? I don't know if he would come uptown. It's not a hood that he normally goes to. I mean, I have no idea. How. I have no idea. That's a hard one. I mean, he barely comes to New York anymore, uh, which is probably a wise choice. Um, is it too early for food diplomacy? Are things still too raw? I, I think there's, there needs to be a couple of apologies to some of the amazing cooks and cultures in the world. Start with Mexico, maybe. And whole countries in Africa? Yeah. We can start, well, we can start with Mexico. Just start with one place close to home. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I, I think... I, but honestly, I feel bad for people that chooses not to be exposed to these incredible things called music, food, and culture. Because you miss out on the goodness of great conversation, great people. You can have as many buildings as you want, but you're so poor in your choices, in your companionship, in your friendship. And I feel bad for people like that. I, I, you know, last time he was in Harlem, 
he blamed young, five young boys for a rape that they didn't do. Central Park Five. That was the last time he was talking about Harlem. And um, it's funny because the other day they, he said, today in America it's dangerous for young men because they can get blamed for something they haven't done. That's what he was saying. Well, those young boys, they were teenagers when they were judged as an adult, wrongly judged. And they spent decades in jail. So it's, um, I, you know, I don't want to even harp on it too much because I think that food culture people is the way, it's always been the way to work things out. There is no real other way to work stuff out but to spend a lot of time together and figure each other out. This is a moment we're all going to look back at. We look back at the Nixon era, right? We look back at Cerneras and be like, how could we argue about all this stuff? So we're going to look back at this era. Marcus Samuelson, what's in the future for you? You've always got like 20 different projects going. Well, I'm excited that we're going to do a second season on No Passport. So we just started to talk about the cities and where and people. Can you share any? Not yet, not yet. But it's going to be delicious. I know that. We're going to meet some awesome people. And um, there will be a lot of work with... CCAP and kids that I work with already. There's some of them are here tonight. So it's culinary training program in high schools. Yeah. yeah, but just continue to cook really yummy, delicious food and 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 build communities. You know. Marcus Samuelson, chef at Red Rooster, author of a zillion cookbooks, and they're all very special and very different. Okay, author of Aquavit, <laughs> the Red Rooster cookbook. Anyway, each book took four years. Buy them all. Thank you so much for talking to me today. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks to Monica Eng for that interview with Marcus Samuelson. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about women. There are not just more women in Congress. There's more women in the defense industry. Right now, four out of the five biggest U.S. defense contractors are run by women. Tomorrow on Worldview, I'll talk with feminist scholar Cynthia Enlow. She is written extensively about women and militarization, and we'll hear her thoughts on the trends in the defense industry. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.